2: Up on today's show, Canada can do great things, but the sensible center can't be distracted by the fringes. The Liberals launching negotiations to buy F 35 fighter jets, and will the International Space Station survive the war in Ukraine? Dr. Bradley Danielson, he's a scientist headed to the Arctic to study glaciers. This week, a great piece, at least I think it was a great piece, appeared in the Globe and Mail. It was jointly written by Daniel Venier, who served as a senior advisor to three cabinet ministers in Brian Mulroney's government and then ran as a liberal candidate in B.C. Uh, and Rick Peterson, who ran for the Conservatives twice. So, as you might expect, it's about politics, but it touches on a theme that I like to hammer away on at the, on this show as much as possible. No matter what party you support, I, I firmly believe you're probably going to have more in common with your perceived opponents than you think. Um, We've become extremely partisan and tribal, at least on the surface. But in reality, I don't know if we're really all that way. And that was the point of this piece. So joining us now to talk more about it, we have Daniel Vanier. Daniel, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today.
3: It's my, my great pleasure. It sounds like you should have co-written the piece with us.
2: <laughs> you know what? I, I just think, you know what, at, 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 as I was reading, I was like, yes, yes, these guys are absolutely right. You know, um, And first of all, the way you wrote it, tra- tying it to something that I think is readily accessible to so many Canadians, you, you, you make it into an analogy about hockey, which I think is perfect.
3: Uh, uh, well, that was my friend Peterson's idea. We're both old hockey players, and uh, we played at a competitive level. We love the sport. We love our teams. Uh, but I think most of us and i am talk about most of us I think most Canadians are reasonable uh well grounded people and uh, we 've been obviously active in politics. I ran and I got my my posterior handed to me uh, when after Michael Ignatieff asked me to run i 've always been interested in public policy, and so has and so has rick and we 've always been interested in service, but our country has always come before our partisan affiliations, and I think most of us when I say most of us, again most Canadians are the same mm-hmm. what, what we 've had trouble with is you know the increasing polarization, and we 're worried about it on the left and the right you know oh, yeah. on the left uh, on the left you know uh, you 've got people who believe that we should be banning cutting trees and therefore gutting the forest industry and shutting down the oil industry in its entirety, no pipelines and you know who put identity politics above all else and that business is bad on on the on the right and i'm talking about the extremes here you know the conspiracy theories and the qAnon cranks and the racism and anti-semitism that you see the you know anti-gay anti-abortion stuff the social conservatism all government is bad uh you know i i don't believe and i think the the, the data shows that most of us are simply not on either pole. Uh, we're kind of in in the mm-hmm. middle, and uh, you know we we you know believe in smart spending. We believe in free enterprise, but with guardrails. Uh, we believe in collective responsibility, and uh, we believe in as a society, uh, government's role of helping those who don't who aren't able to help themselves and who need a lift. We believe in a strong military. We think that. Uh, uh, There should be a balanced policy towards climate, but not one that guts entire industries and turns, for example, Alberta into a global pariah, for goodness sakes. Uh, We believe in the rule of law and fairness and equal opportunity, but not survival of the fittest, which is more akin to the culture of our friends and families uh, uh, south of the border. That's just not us. And I don't think that... Uh, there's a voice, there used to be, but the voice of the sensible center, the people in the middle, uh, is being lost in the the white noise and toxicity of our current politics, which is also amped up by social media and amplified in a way that we've never seen before. And we're kind of hoping that we could kind of tone it down and bring the discussion back to areas where we believe we have an awful lot in common and there's more than uh more that unites us and divides us
2: I agree with you. And I think you're right. I think the vast majority of Canadians recognize that, yeah, there is more that unites us than divides us. But I think a lot of us, the perception of the environment, and I don't know if it's social media. I don't know what it is, but I think a lot of us have the perception that it's not that way. That if you're someone who isn't yelling and screaming about this or that or on the polar opposites, as you said, you're, you're, you're the outlier because it seems like it is that divided. Do you agree? Look, I agree
3: completely, and it's what what, it's what worries me, and worries Rick, uh, worries a lot of us, I think. And I think that uh, unless it's checked by people like you, (coughs) frankly, uh, and us, and uh, unless we make our voices heard, we're in danger of this culture, this political culture, being entrenched uh, because I think it's artificial. Uh, I I think some politicians and political strategists do this, engage in wedge politics, divisive politics, in in order to snatch up every possible vote they can. Their job is to to divide and conquer, literally, in electoral terms. And that means doing what is necessary to capture your vote. And if it means uh, generating uh, anger so that someone will vote for you and against someone else... That's what we'll do, and it creates it creates a polarization that uh, and a tribalism. The word that you've used is exactly right. That is almost immovable, and that worries the hell out of us.
2: When we take a look at the politicians, and I, and I, I heap a great deal of blame on the politicians who who pander to this kind of politicking. I think it's it's based, It's elementary. It, is the reason because it's. A motivated. I mean, like you say, when you've got somebody who's angry, they're far more motivated and they're far more likely to be a strident supporter and actually go out to the polls. I mean, those votes, I mean all voters are the same, but are those votes a little less equal and a little little better if you're a politician to have that kind of person in your base?
3: it's it's all it's all about vote counting shape, right? So uh, the idea if you if you enter politics, you know I ran for office and I've been involved. Um, uh, it's all about trying to find, identify uh, and in this age of micro-targeting, it's practically a science now. You know where the votes are. You know what messages to convey to get them or to prevent them from voting for the other guy. And that's the name of the game. So, uh, you know, it's not about appealing to our better instincts. It's not about, you know, trying to empower your better angels. It's literally about uh, uh, scratching the ugly underbelly to get every single possible vote. So uh, I, I think the incentives are there, and it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. You know, if you, if you attract, if the kind of people that run for office and that are in office do this uh, as a normal day at the office, as part of their doing business, then that's the kind of people that uh, you will attract and it, and it gets stronger and more fortified and amplified. Uh, but, uh, so, I, look, I, I can't pretend to offer uh, a great solution yeah. other than to talk about it uh, and to hopefully attract uh, decent people in the public office who, who run for the right reasons. Uh, but, uh, you know, the polarization is dangerous. The populism that we see is, I think, a, I think a function of people on the fringes, left and right, being fed up uh, and being uh, concerned that their voices aren't being heard, paid attention to, and discarded. Uh, so you know, there's. I mean, it's it's a complex problem. It's one made much more difficult by the social media environment sure. that we're in, and you know, the the, the 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 massive issues that we've been dealing with uh, as a as a country and as a and as a as as a as citizens of the world, uh, you know uh, people are worried it 's affecting their pocketbooks it 's affecting their health, and you know they spend too much time uh, paying attention to this stuff and it 's getting them upset
2: and Daniel, part of the problem I think uh, is when you have uh, uh, po- uh, politicians who are so focused on identity politics and issues that really don 't resonate with most people and most people don 't care about and want more from. Their elected officials. Honestly, they do. They, 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 we're talking about climate change this morning. We've got war in Europe. We've got inflation through the roof. There's all kinds of things going on, a pandemic for God's sake. And, and, and we're arguing about nonsense that I think most people don't really care about. It really limits what we can do in terms of nation building and being you know, involved in projects around the world and in our country, because we're tied up with yelling and screaming at each other about nothing.
3: Uh, again, I couldn't agree with you more. I was expecting a debate with you, but I'm not getting one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, sometimes uh, but, we agree.
3: <laughs> yeah, look, the the uh, yeah, a perfect example is the discussion on uh, on on pronouns, right? So he, she, right. if what? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's nonsensical. Most of us really, if if you want to be called it or she or he, okay, no Great. problem. Yeah. but we don't have to. We don't have to make it a massive public debate. Right. A, a people's sexual identity. Frankly, from my point of view, God bless you, who cares? Exactly. You can do whatever you want to be and sleep <laughs> with whoever you want to sleep with and love whoever you want to love. But, you know, my kids uh, and most of us have far more significant issues to deal with that require a lot of attention and serious thought and debate and action. And, uh, you know, it's not for me, and I don't want to engage in this kind of conversation, but People engage in it because it's a hot button issue. It it uh, it's a, an emotional one for many people. It gets them angry on both sides of the equation, and that's the reason why uh, we 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 uh, perpetuate this kind of you know, senseless discussion at the expense of what's really important. And we lose sight of it. We, we lose sight of it. So it's it's not productive. It's corrosive. Not only to our, our our politics, but to our unity as a people in the country. It, take a look at the truckers that descended on Ottawa. No one would have an issue with people going to Parliament Hill to protest. No one, zero. It it, it became it became an issue when uh, uh, two reasons. When uh, the citizens of Ottawa were minding their own business, uh, were lives were disrupted. And two, when a lot of Canadians thought, "Well, where's the law here? Where's the rule of law? Uh, these folks are breaking the law. They're flaunting it, and they're calling for the overthrow of the government." You've got SWAT stickers being waved around. Yeah, uh, you know, that just doesn't feel right to us. And it didn't feel right to most people. Now, a uh, 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 protesting—if you're an anti vaxxer protest fine. If you're an anti-masker, fine. But and there's room, and there has to be room for that kind of thing in a democratic society. But uh, we we also agree that with rights comes responsibility, and uh, we often forget that that there is no we don't have God-given rights without the responsibilities, because we we, uh, the rights that we have we give them to each other as a society, as a compact, and that's balanced against a responsibility for us. To treat each other with respect and with care and with dignity and uh, in this environment we forget it and that's to our collective detriment we we all lose when yes. uh, uh, when that happens and when the tone and the tenor and the substance of our national conversation descends to a level where we're yelling and screaming at each other about marginal issues that at the end of the day don't make a difference to our collective well-being.
2: Daniel, you, it's not just me that agrees with you. I could read you a bunch of texts from listeners like this one. Excellent guest. We need more people to have these level-headed thought processes. Um, <laughs> a, a lot of people, what you had to say resonated with them, so I'm really glad you came on to uh, expand on it with us. And, uh, as I, and We couldn't debate because I agree with you too much on this, Daniel.
3: Well, look, it's lovely of you to reach out, uh, and, and thank you for reading the piece and uh, bringing it to the attention of your listeners. Uh, Absolutely. It's really good of you.
2: Yeah, great. Thanks so much, Daniel. I really appreciate your time. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you. That is Daniel Venier, who, as I say, I mean, he's not just come to this lately, this sort of centrist view of the world. He, um, <laughs> he was a senior advisor to three cabinet ministers in Prime Minister Brian Mulroney's government. And then ran for the federal liberals uh, in British Columbia in an election. So, um, you know, those are the kind of voices that I think if we have an opportunity to bring onto the show, I I love to do it because it's sort of in much better words, much more eloquently than I could do. um, He said exactly what I've tried to say on this show many times is. I understand the draw of that us-versus-them politics, and I know that we have some really, really adept politicians who play that, and some, quote-unquote, alternative media outlets and social media. uh, There's a whole ecosystem around making sure that a lot of people are angry at each other all the time. Why? Because then you're engaged, and you're getting clicks, you're getting votes, you're getting money. It's a good little racket, and what we have to do is not let ourselves get sucked into that. I mean, for a while I thought, okay, politicians, we're going to, we're going to run up to a point where politicians say, you know what, this isn't, it works for me, but it's detrimental to society and to my province or my country or whatever the case may be. So I'm not going to do it. You know, I'll personally take a step back, recognizing that it's destructive and not a good way to go on. That ship has sailed. I, I've lost faith in that. The politicians aren't going to bail us out on this. And I'm not saying all politicians, but you know, which ones I'm talking about. Um, So it it, it comes to us to not get into that because the only ones who win in these kinds of situations are the politicians. If you've got, and I see it on the text line, constantly, all day, every day. I mean, we're having this discussion about how we have more in common and we agree with each other and, you know, we need to get rid of the partisan tribalism and I'm getting texts from people saying, yeah, well, Trudeau did this and Trudeau did that. Oh, I hope Notley hears this. The UCP are the worst. I mean, you just immediately default to coming out of your corner and fighting for your tribe. That's what needs to stop. But it's hard. I, I get it. But if you're in that camp where you're entrenched, where, you know, if, if you, if you call Jason Kenny bumbles, or if you call Jason or call Justin Trudeau, true dope, to me, that means you're, you're locked in, you are locked in. And, you know, uh, you don't the, the parties don't have to worry about you anymore you're 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 put away to the side they don't have to deal with you you're you're one way or the other and your voice is, doesn't matter because you're locked up you know it's it's blind allegiance and that benefits them and nobody else so i don't know more voices like daniel uh, more talk because then we can actually focus on the things that matter we get wrapped up in nonsense that really who cares Laurie Hahn reached out to me yesterday. A lot of you know Laurie in this part of the world. Laurie was uh, a Conservative MP for a number of years. He was also a fighter jet pilot for a number of years in the Canadian Air Force. So he's got a unique um, perspective on this F-35 situation. Not only that, he was right there, like literally in the room when this whole thing started back in 2010. So he wanted to come on and talk a bit about the situation. I'm glad he could join us this morning. Uh, Laurie, thanks for your time. Always nice to chat. Yeah, you betcha. I'll try not to wedge you. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're not one of the wedge guys. You've always been pretty good that way. Um, Let's get into this discussion here, because some of the things that were talked about yesterday, let's go back to the beginning, because literally you were there. You were Parliamentary Secretary to Peter McKay. I mean, so you were probably in the room when all these discussions happened. So take us back to 2010 and how this whole thing got started. Well,
1: first of all, I'll take you back to 1977. I was part of the New Fighter Aircraft Program, and this is a repeat of that 40 years or so later. But in, uh, you know more recently, in, in 2010, I mean, we had been part of the uh, Joint Strike Fighter program since 1997, uh, which didn't say we were buying the F-35, but we were, we were part of that. And we did a number of studies uh, looking at various options, as did now 18-plus countries, various options. And every single time, the F-35 topped the list in terms of cost, survivability, interoperability, and industrial benefits so we made the decision to do that uh sole source yep. which is allowed which is allowed under national security exemption it's, it's not unusual when there's nothing else that will fit the bill for instance the c-17 and the c-130j that we bought was in the same same sort of philosophy we didn't do you know a quote-unquote open and fair competition in those because there was no other option one of the problems or one of the challenges with the the f-35 program in terms of open and fair competition, is so much of the information about the F-35 is so highly classified that it just cannot be discussed in public, and that was one of the reasons. I'll, it was a false reason, but the Liberals slapped a lifetime non-disclosure agreement on people who were involved in the in the new fighter or next-generation fighter program at the time, just so that they would, you know, not be able to say what actually went on within the program, I wasn't one of those people yeah uh, but uh it certainly was you know people said it wasn't open and fair it 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 was fair. It wasn't as open as people wanted, like I said, because of the
2: extreme classification of the of the information. And as you say, that turned into a huge fight, and uh, and it was all over procurement, not necessarily the, the fighter jet, which led to an election, ultimately, one of the components that led to the non-confidence vote that led to the election, and, uh, and that sort of shelved this entire project, and then 2015 rolls around, and Trudeau completely drives the final nail in, saying we're not going with F-35s, which again goes against the procurement deal, right? I mean, that's not how things are supposed to work either. Well, it's not. I mean, you know, with respect to the position of Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau had no
1: idea what he was talking about when he said, we'll never buy it because it doesn't work and it it costs too much. He was wrong on both counts. He's been proven wrong on both counts. But it's max of uh, Jean Chrétien and the EH-101, where he made the same Same uninformed uh, mistake, and we went back and eventually bought the EH-101, a version of it, So it's deja vu all over again.
2: So, yeah, okay, so now we've got both parties with, you know, all kinds of issues, controversies, elections, blah, 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 the whole thing pushing us back many years. Now we get to the point where we are now with the plane. And I know we had some callers yesterday talking about, you know, just the cost of a a helmet for these fighter pilots is going to be $5 million. And you're saying, no, 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 we've got some pretty bad information. These planes are not that expensive to operate, Right
1: we will buy the airplane for the exact same price the United States Air Force gets it, and that's the provision under the Memorandum of Understanding. And by the way, the helmet doesn't cost $5 million, It's about 400000 which is which is pretty damn expensive. It is. not $5 million.
2: So when we talk about the cost of operating these planes, uh, you know, people are saying it's going to be astronomical. Is it as bad? As, I mean, it, it, is it going to be a, something that uh, we need to be more aware of? Is it, or are we going in blindly here? No, uh, not at all. In fact, this is not new money. The acquisition, that's new money. Yeah. But the sustainment, you know,
1: we're sustaining the F-18 fleet now. We'll sustain the F-35 fleet tomorrow. You know, fuel today is, is fuel tomorrow. Pilots today are pilots tomorrow. And the Australians are finding that the for them, because they have F-35s and Super Hornets, the cost of operating the, the F-35 is about the same as operating the Super Hornet. One of the things that people would not understand is that you, they're looking at American numbers on that, and the cost U.S. forces a lot more to operate an airplane that does us or the Aussies because they have many more people involved. Yeah. It's not they're you know, any less capable or so on. It's just we have a different philosophy. We put it takes us fewer people to man uh, to, to support the airplane like the Aussies and the Brits. So it's an apples and oranges comparison. Is it expensive? Yes, it is. Is national security important? Yes, it is. Is our responsibility to the rest of the world in things like NATO? Yes, it is. Not Not everybody might agree with that, but I you know, I certainly do. And uh, Canada has a position in the world that we, we, frankly, need to maintain because we have become irrelevant in the last few years. And uh, we, need to, we need to get back to some point of relevance, but it's going to take years to do that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We're coming from a long way back. I, you're absolutely right. Um, okay, so cost aside, in terms of efficiency, effectiveness, are these the right planes for Canada? Are there better fighter jets out there? Or are we getting the ones that we should be getting?
1: We are getting the ones we should be getting. Every evaluation by, you know, 18-plus countries has come up with the exact same answer in terms of cost, survivability, interoperability, and so on. So this is absolutely the right airplane. Are these airplanes cheap? No, they're not. Nothing Nothing is. But the F-35 is actually, is cheaper than It it's cheaper than Gripen, it's certainly cheaper than the Eurofighter. It is the cheapest airplane. It is the only one that is interoperable right now with uh, with our forces, our partners in NORAD and, and our partners in NATO. So it is simply the right answer. Our challenge now is gonna be implementation because we have fewer than 50, we have about 50 fighter pilots in the entire RCAF. And we need at least three times that to you know keep the existing fleet going while we bring in the new fleet. So it's gonna be a huge challenge and it's gonna take years and years to do that, I'm afraid.
2: Okay, so, but I mean, fortunately, we do have years and years. One thing, uh, last thing, and then I want to, uh, I'll let you go, Laurie, I appreciate your time. Um, one of the things I read is, you know, the fact that the the reason, you know, the reality is this took a lot longer than it could have. You know, I think the original estimation was 2016, if we went ahead in 2010. Now we're looking at 2026. People are saying, you know what, that 10 years actually might benefit Canada in the long run, because a lot of the the bugs and the new discoveries about these aircraft have been worked out now, and they're far more maintenance light and more efficient and a lot of the problems have been worked out already by other other countries.
1: Yeah and and there's and there's a lot of truth to that and and I I acknowledge that the other hidden cost and I just sort of mentioned it is people. Yeah. Pilots and maintainers to a lesser extent but certainly pilots have just got have gotten fed up and have left in disgust. Uh, and we can't get those guys off the shelf in Walmart. It takes about 3 years at least to get a guy to wings graduation. Uh, and probably five or six years till a pilot is ready to be a leader on a on a fighter squadron. So, you know, that's a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of, uh you know, and not being where we should be. So, there's various ways to look at cost, and and the the cost of the of the jet is cheaper now. That's true, and they've gotten better at maintaining it, and and we've learned a lot there. But you need to look at the whole the whole picture. So, am I glad we did this? Absolutely. It's the right thing to do. It's you know, it's, it's a little late. We've got some catch-up to do, but yeah. we've got some of the best people in the world involved in doing that, and
2: we will get there. Okay, good to hear. Lori, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Anytime, Shay. Take care. You bet. That's Lori Hahn, former Conservative MP, former fighter pilot in the Royal Canadian Air Force, uh, giving us some insight into the F-35 and uh, why it's the right way to go.
1: Soyuz MS-19 under the command of Anton Shkaplerov, back on Earth, along with Mark VandeHei and uh, Pyotr Dubrov. A nominal entry, a perfect landing, a bullseye touchdown.
2: An American astronaut and two Russian cosmonauts safely back on Earth this morning. Uh, they spent a year on the International Space Station. That was uh, the sound of them landing today. The Americans had an American record, 355 days aboard the space station. Couple of days short of a full year now. It's a good thing they're back. Um, You might remember a few weeks ago we talked about the International Space Station and the fact that its future is a little bit murky in light of the conflict in Ukraine. Um, A Twitter war has erupted uh, between a former American astronaut and the head of the Russian Space Agency. Threats went back and forth. Will things stay in orbit? Will the Russians pull out? It, was, it got nasty. It really, really did. So where are we now? What does the future of the International Space Station look like? We're going to chat with Dr. Aaron Boley now, who holds the Canada Research Chair in Planetary Astronomy, teaches at the University of British Columbia, and uh, is a co-director of the Outer Space Institute. Um, Dr. Boley, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure. So um, this month you know, as the war rages on in Ukraine. We've got Russian cosmonauts up on the space station. Three of them just arrived. Um, Right. Things seem to be going well at this point, right? Free from politics, or maybe even the Russians making a statement about support for Ukraine, right?
0: Well, so the International Space Station, just space in general, has been uh, a very complex domain for nations to operate in. And it has been an area... That has demanded cooperation. And every time we've seen some type of veer off course, uh, we've been brought back to the reality of having to cooperate in space. And so the ISS is a symbol of that cooperation. Uh, and, you know, things have been really bad uh, as of late, and they've been bad in the past as well. But cooperation in space has remained. And so, we, you know, we can be hopeful that that's going to continue, and in some cases we need to ensure it does, because it it is a place uh, where uh, we can, uh, as humanity, uh, have peaceful cooperation.
2: Yeah, and that's a great point, and that's sort of the essence of the International Space Station, right? That's sort of its, its, its mission, that's where it came about, is international cooperation and peace.
0: I mean, we have the ISS is a fantastic science laboratory, no uh, question about it, and there are amazing things that are being done uh, in that environment. Um, but when it was um, conceived as the ISS, uh, it it really uh, took on the principal mission of being um, a vessel for cooperation. It was uh, at the fall of the Soviet Union. And uh, the uh, West was really worried about uh, what uh, the, particularly the the Russian state, would do Mm -hmm. with all of this technology uh, and proliferate it to uh, states that were adversarial to the West. And so there was this cooperation that formed uh, from that point of view. And it was also the case that the West really needed uh, the Soviet technology because at the time, it, it really was the Soviets who had the most. Experience operating uh, in space for long duration space flights. They're the ones who had the space stations already. Uh, and they had the experience of building modular space stations from Mir.
2: And, you know, so from its inception, Russia was important. And throughout its lifetime, uh, keeping this thing going okay. has also, Russia's played an integral role in that as well.
0: So it was designed with this cooperation in mind, where the different states brought. Uh, kind of different components to uh, what becomes the whole and so the ISS does not function without the cooperation of the other states
2: exactly yeah and I mean Russia's talked about yeah they, they're they're sort of responsible for maintaining orbit and that was one of the That's threats right. that they made um, but quietly last week they went and gave it the push that it needed right
0: yeah so there I mean there's going to be a lot of politics that happens on the ground yeah. uh, uh, but you know, when it comes to it, there's so much investment, there's so much mutual interest in seeing the ISS succeed and seeing cooperation in space be maintained. Um, that yes, we're going to have these tweets and we're going to have some um, horrible videos that are that are created, but in the end, the ISS is going to get boosted. Uh, a U.S. astronaut is going to go to um, is going to return with cosmonauts. And, and we're seeing that continue. And so there is a very good reason for hope in that sense, because we have to maintain space for peaceful purposes. Um, I, I really need to press that point, because if we have our conflicts extend into space, that's going to create tremendous difficulties on Earth because of our reliance on space assets.
2: How concerned are you, and I think, you know, people in the scientific community and, and people like me who are just interested observers agree with you 100%. How concerned are you, though, that politicians may recognize that this is something they can use, uh, for lack of a better term, as a negotiating tool, something they can use to put pressure on one side or the other? The Russians saying, we won't support this anymore. And, you know, I mean, yeah. those kinds of things. Can it become political that way?
0: Well, th- there's always been that tension. There's always that danger. Um and you know the past doesn't tell us what exactly is you know going to happen in the future, yeah. uh, but we can look in the past and see that we've seen this type of behavior uh before and and you know different contexts, but uh, very similar type uh, of situation so the the famous handshake um uh which ended the the space race, so to speak. Uh, between the Apollo astronauts and the Soyuz astronauts, uh, cosmonauts. Uh, That took place in 1975, just after, uh, I I think I have the timing right, just after the fall of Saigon. And that whole process was developed during the Vietnam War. Uh, Very high tensions. Um, There uh, in the late 50s to early 60s, Um, The U.S. and the the Soviet Union were uh, detonating nuclear bombs in space uh, to see if they could do things like deny um, access to space to one another, to see what uh, just would happen if you could intercept ballistic missiles that way. Um, But the, the consequences of doing so were immediately recognized, because they created um, problems for power grids on Earth uh, as one example. They also knocked out some satellites they didn't need to touch at all. And so they quickly came together and formed the Limited Test Ban Treaty uh, for prohibiting uh, nuclear weapon tests and the place ultimately leading to the Outer Space Treaty, uh, which prevents the placement of uh, nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction in outer space. So like, during the, the height of the Cold War, and during very intense periods of conflict in the past, we have seen space always be a unifying um, uh, regime for uh, very adversarial countries and and we can hope that that's going to continue. So yes, politicians will yeah um, use this, you know, to try to move their political needle in the way that they they think is the most advantageous way. But there's a harsh reality operating in space. And that harsh reality, I think, grounds us so far. And we'll continue to do so for the foreseeable future.
2: And has kept it apolitical to this point, which uh, is for the benefit of all of us. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for your time. Really interesting conversation. Thank you. You're, You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Aaron Boley, who is the Canada Research Chair in Planetary Astronomy and a teacher at University of British Columbia and co-director of the Outer Space Institute. And as I said, um, you know, an American astronaut and two Russian cosmonauts safely back on earth today. Um, so they were flown to Kazakhstan on a Soyuz Russian rocket um, or a space capsule, I guess, in this case. So um, it's still working. And, you know, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, the discussion was in order for the uh, ISS to maintain its orbit, it, re- it required Russian rockets to go up and, and give it a little nudge. And, That was one of the threats that was made by the head of the Russian Space Agency. We're not going to do that anymore. Well, lo and behold, last week, quietly, they went up and did what they always do. So to this point, to this point, the International Space Station appears to be remaining apolitical and above, literally above, what's going on down on Earth. And a lot of concern in the community that it stays that way. Sticking with the science theme, we've got a group of natural resources scientists that are headed out soon, going north to study glaciers. I think this is going to be a pretty cool discussion. We're going to chat now with Dr. Bradley Danielson, who's a physical scientist, Geological Survey of Canada, Natural Resources Canada. Dr. Danielson, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time.
4: Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me on. You can call me Brad if you want.
2: Sure, we will do. Um, First, I mean, this sounds like a really cool, it's, it's like, kind of like an expedition, right? I mean, that's exactly what it is, right? It is kind of, yeah. It's,
4: it's, we call it a field campaign. Um, it's a month, a uh, month and a half long. And yeah, we go up to the Arctic and we do a bunch of measurements at a bunch of long-term monitoring sites.
2: Um, where are you headed p- precisely? It's just all up to the Arctic? Where, where in, in particular?
4: Yeah, yeah. So we're heading to basically the northernmost part of Nunavut um, to a large group of islands called the Queen Elizabeth Islands. Um, if you take a look at the map of Canada, it's that cluster of islands at the very top of Canada. And so the first stop on our route is a is a settlement called Resolute Bay, okay. where there's a logist, uh, sorry a
2: logistics base. Yeah, I've heard of and that. And
4: that's where we base all of our work out of.
2: Um, what are you expecting? I mean, what, what, it's, I mean, you're talking about, like, the most extreme environment I can think of. What kind of conditions do you think you'll encounter? Yeah, it, it's...
4: You know, in terms of Canada, it's extreme for sure. Um, it'll be cold still when we get there. So I'm leaving from Edmonton on the 15th of April. And when we arrive in Resolute Bay, it'll still be like the coldest conditions that we face in Edmonton in, say, January. Like we're we're expecting minus 30 conditions and a lot of wind chill. Um, but when we get there, it'll be 24-hour daylight, basically. So we do get a lot of sunny days, which is really nice. But um, it's cold.
2: Yeah, yeah. It I, sounds like it. So, are you outside? I mean, obviously, you're outside. Just tell what what's a day in the life going to be like. What kind of work are you actually doing?
4: Yeah, so there's we're outside a lot. Um, when we get to Resolute Bay, our first stop, as I mentioned, is at this logistics base, and that's where we have a lot of our gear stored, and we also get issued a lot of equipment, like our snowmobiles and sleds and parkas and things like that. So we prep all of our gear there, and then once the weather's good enough to fly to each of our measurement sites we get on a small twin otter aircraft with skis on it and we fly off you know several hundred kilometers to a work site we land on the glacier on on this airplane with skis on it um we get out the pilot and co-pilot help us unload all of our gear and then they take off and go back to resolute and then we set up camp so we set up camp on the ice cap and um we're there on our own for between three and five days at most places. Uh, at our largest site, we're there for about 10 days. And, yeah, we live in tents, we snowmobile around, and we we measure the glaciers.
2: You live in tents? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah.
4: yeah. <laughs> Have you done this yeah. before? Oh, yeah. I've done this many, many times. What's that like? Yeah um you you definitely gotta get used to winter camping conditions, so having good gear is essential yeah um having obviously a good sleeping bag, good sleeping sleeping mats um really high quality tents that can withstand storms because we do we do experience some pretty big storms and really serious winds at times um yeah, it's something to get used to for sure, but if you've done any camping, it's just kind of ratchet that up a notch
2: um the importance of this, the work that you're doing, um, why, I, that's the question always, why, why are we doing this and what, what what do we need to learn? What will we learn?
4: Yeah, so what we're doing on a year-to-year basis is we're collecting really detailed measurements of the changes that are occurring on the glaciers in Arctic Canada. Um, so what that means is we're measuring the, the change in the thickness of these glaciers. Um, and what we can do with that information is that when we come back south we can analyze that to see on a on a whole for each of the glaciers that we measure how much is the total thickness changing in a year and then we can combine that information with satellite imagery or airborne survey imagery and we can also also measure the area changes that are occurring on the glaciers and then we can start to extrapolate to a bigger picture from that very small detailed scale out to sort of the scale of all of the glaciers in in arctic canada how much change is occurring okay. and what that allows us to find out is how much volume of ice is being lost on a year to year
2: basis and does that sort of tell us what we need to prepare prepare for in terms of because we always hear about rising sea levels as a result of melting of uh, sea ice right
4: yeah that's exactly that's exactly it yeah that's the impact and um if we if we continue to refine our knowledge about how much and how quickly glacier mass or glacier volume is is melting off of these glaciers, it's ending up in the ocean, then we get an idea of what future sea level rise might be like. And if policymakers and planners and engineers have a really good idea of how fast sea level rise will change over the next century, then they can develop better mitigation plans, um, for instance, for protecting coastal cities right. or infrastructure and and
2: Makes perfect sense, yeah. Hey, while well, I've got you, I don't get to talk to glacier experts very often. I wanted to ask you, I read a couple of stories last week about, uh, it's in Antarctica, I know you're headed north, but you probably are familiar with what I'm talking about. A, a chunk of ice fell off of a glacier in Antarctica, the size of New York City, um, and a lot of people really saying that this is a bad sign. We weren't expecting this. To... What, what do you know about that situation?
4: Yeah, I don't know a ton about that, but I've been reading up on it a little bit. So that was, um, I think you're referring to the Conger ice shelf, yes. yeah. and that collapsed off um, off east Antarctica. So ice shelves are are, what happens is the glaciers are ice based on land, and then they flow towards the coast. And when that ice flows off the edge of the land and into the ocean, it kind of, partly floats and it pushes out into the ocean and then that forms an ice shelf. So it's basically floating ice at that point. Okay. Um, And what's happening in in Antarctica right now is, especially in West Antarctica, um, there's, over the years, there's been multiple of those ice shelves that are breaking apart and collapsing. And I think this is one of the few instances where that's happened in East Antarctica. And it's kind of a sign that the stability of these ice shelves are changing.
2: Gotcha, okay. Uh, a bunch of listeners, and it's a great question that I didn't think of. Are there polar bears where you're going, Doc? Yeah, there are, yeah. So what do you do about that?
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when when I go up there in the spring this time of year, we rarely actually see polar bears. Occasionally we see tracks, but we rarely see the bears, and okay. that's because this time of year they're out on the sea ice hunting seals, and that's where that's where they need to be for their survival. So we don't have very many encounters with
2: them. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. Uh, Enjoy it, I guess, is the right thing to say. Stay safe, stay warm, and um, we'll talk to you when you get back, perhaps. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Doc. Appreciate your time. Bye. That's Dr. Bradley Danielson, who is a uh, researcher headed up to the Arctic to study glaciers. He's a physical scientist with the Geological Survey of Canada Natural Resources Canada. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favourite podcasts, If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.